welcome to the ABA and PT podcast, where I interview scientists and practitioners from the world of precision teaching and behaviour analysis and share their journeys of how they found their way to the science of behaviour, as well as their discoveries through the use of the standard acceleration chart. I'm Mandy Mason, a scientist practitioner in Perth, Australia, impacted by my daughter with autism, who caused me to knock on enough doors to find my way to this extraordinary field. And I'm on a journey to share how precision teaching and the use of the standard acceleration chart can change the world and make it a better place to live. So I've set myself a lofty goal, to seek out the giants in the field of precision teaching and ABA, share their journeys and discoveries, and influence the work of practitioners who want to be profoundly impactful with their clients and to have the heart to chart. Welcome to episode 15 of the ABA MPT podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back Dr. Abigail Corkin to the podcast. And today we are talking about something very different to our first topic. And today we're talking about a book that she first published in 1995. She relaunched it in 2013. It is called The Caroline Letters, a story of birth, adoption and abortion and it's a hot topic right now given the state of legislature and court cases in America. Abigail is both a precision teacher and an author and this is a very interesting story. My podcast is broken into two parts because I interviewed her prior to reading the book and then after reading the book you'll see a little jump in the middle of this podcast where I launch into the second episode. What's so interesting about this book is that it incorporates a lot of data and, um, in particular, fetal movements. So there is that precision teaching element to it. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Abigail Corkin and the Caroline Letters. I am absolutely delighted to welcome back Abigail Corkin to the podcast. I thought I was lucky to get her once and then she offered to come back a second time and now I have her a third time. So I'm a very, very lucky podcast host. And I'm delighted because she's asked to speak publicly about her book that is due to, when is it due to launch, Abigail? Uh, It actually, well, the first edition came out in, I believe it was 1995. And then the publisher asked to do a second edition of it. And that came out in 2013, I think it was. So wow. I should know that. So this is a revised edition. Revised edition, and it's been out since 2013, I believe. Because it is topical right now, it's fair to say. Very. Yes. So tell us about the, the topic and tell us, well, first, first of all, tell us the title. The title is The Caroline Letters. The Caroline Letters. Talk to us about the Caroline. Caroline letters. Caroline is spelt with a Y. I don't know why, but it's just the way the spelling came to me. Yes. So in 1995, you first wrote this book. What was the, um, the impetus for writing this book? Probably just being female and having friends, relatives who have given children up for adoption, adopted children, um, had an abortion, had maybe seven miscarriages, been in a position of needing to make a choice. Yes. And so I consider it a book about choices, primarily a choice in a, in a, during a pregnancy. Yeah, and you have your own journey 
with um, birth experience as well? Yes, I am a mother um, of one child and a grandmother of three. I have a number of friends who have, and some relatives who have given a child up for adoption. I don't think people are any more open about that than they are about having had an abortion. But I began to look at the issue when it was still not legal. And so in this country, that was before Roe versus Wade and post Roe versus Wade. It's interesting because the questions, discussion questions that I put in the back of the book, um, I looked them over last week and some of them are definitely written during the when abortion was legal in this country. One of them, for instance, was in the back of the book, how times, how have times changed from the mid-1960s when abortion was illegal to the early 2000s when abortion is legal? Discuss both in terms of the legal context and the social context. And these are items, discussion questions in the back of the book. And I didn't put answers in there because I think the book provides points for answers, points for discussion. My main thing was, how do you discuss this topic? And and one other question was, or uh, another point was, compare the difference between an unexpected pregnancy in the social context of 1964 and 2014. And the other day I added, and in 2022. Yeah. And so things have... Things have changed in this country, are changing, I, I don't know. But it's it's an issue that, oh goodness, I was talking to a 14-year-old the other day who's never been pregnant, uh, would, has had no opportunity to become pregnant, doesn't wish to be pregnant, and or have the opportunity. And uh, she was saying, we were talking about being aware of current issues such as what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Russia, what's going on in uh, South America, in China. And she said, I'm not interested in politics. I'm not that interested in the news. And I thought, oh, goodness gracious me, how do I educate this girl? And then she said, except for the issue of abortion, you know, I'll read about that. I'm interested in that. So I thought, okay. I, on the other hand, grew up in the era of, I was a little tiny toddler during World War II, and some of my family lived in England at the time. Some of them went to war, some were killed, some came home. And so I have always been aware of the issues involved in the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Afghanistan, et cetera. And it really... But a lot of this took place when I was just a beginning teenager. And so it really surprised me to find someone who wasn't interested in politics. But as I start talking to kids, most children, most of them are not interested in what's going on politically all over the world. And I realized that my growing up was very different. For one, I lived in New York City. For another, during the McCarthy era, a number of my friends' parents uh, were in the theater and they got blackballed. So all of a sudden they're completely out of work. 
And so for me to be interested in a any topic that is of national and international interest is not a surprise. Yeah. But it is for, in my opinion, too many people. We don't pay attention to what's going on that can affect our lives. The climate, for instance. Yes. So, so tell, us, tell us about Caroline. Caroline is 20 years old. She's at university and she's involved in a relationship and she becomes pregnant. At the age of 20 and being a university student, either or at the age of 20 or being a university student, she doesn't wish to start a family at this point. She's not married. She's just dating this guy that she's madly in love with. And she gets pregnant, even even though they have used precautions presented that are options at the time. Primarily, it was condoms then. And so then it becomes what to do. Do I have this child and keep it? Do I have an abortion? Do I have this child and give it up for adoption? So not knowing, I don't think I started off with a, a, a decisive idea on which way I was going to go. I wanted to look at all three of them. And I also had read Roger Rosenblatt's book, I think it's called Life Itself, and where he wrote a book about the issue of abortion and that it's not a black and white issue. It's not clear cut. You can't say, yes, you will, no, you won't, you know, and, and be absolutely firm on that and never change your mind. Uh, what would you do, for instance, if you had, uh, if you were pregnant, if a, you, a female or your partner, if you were male or female, but if your partner were pregnant and the amniocentesis showed a severe malformation. One I can think of is, well, a couple I can think of. The brain is outside the skull. There is no brain. What do you do? You know, do you carry on with this pregnancy for the next seven or six months knowing that you are carrying something that is not going to survive in any way, shape, or form? I mean, to me, that's kind of like the equivalent of torture. Yeah. Um, I, I cannot imagine. My grandmother, had, uh, well, one of the children was five. She lost two pregnancies at birth. The woman was quite depressed. Yeah. What choice would she have made in the 1890s had she known had she had medical science given her the option of knowing that this was going to be the reality? Yeah. And as far as I can tell from family stories, the first child she had was not a normal child. Yeah. You know, would she have chosen that child? Yeah. Would she have chosen to have that child who, from the stories I've heard, probably had spina bifida, but never learned to walk, could not sit up on her own? And that's why I say spina bifida it could have been something totally different. I mean, I've worked with several students who have spina bifida and they 
they walk, they're disabled, but they walk and they're have a great sense of the ones I met and knew had marvelous sense of humor, you know, and, and I, there is not an easy answer. And I don't think it's an answer or a question that somebody else can tell you what the answer is to it. Right. Yeah. What a topic. (laughs) It's a, it's a tough one. It really, really, you know, I I think about it almost every night. Yeah. Ever since I was in my own twenties, you know, how do you make a choice like that? How do you think upbringing influences your views on birth and pregnancy? Well, it certainly was nothing that was ever talked about in my home. Right. Um, I'm one of four. My mother never had a miscarriage. That I know. I also know how deeply and sadly affected my grandmother was. The other grandmother had six children, and she never had a miscarriage. So, you know, there's a real juxtaposition there of, uh, of what what goes on. I, I read today of a story where a 16-year-old girl in the, in the newspaper, I read it, a 16-year-old girl went to court to request permission to have an abortion because she was not, she lived with neither parents. She had no relationship with either parent. And uh, her uh, guardian was all right with her She was supportive of what the girl wanted, which was to have an abortion. The judge said, she's 16, that she was too young to make such a decision and therefore had to continue with the pregnancy. And my thought was, if she's too young to make a decision like that, why is she not too young to have a child? And at the age of 16, with out having finished high school, with no job, with poor opportunity for employment, how is she qualified to be a mother? If she's not qualified to make her own decision, how is she qualified to raise a child? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine as, as a, uh, a parent of a child that has severe autism, who, you know, has great difficulty caring for herself, she's just turned 18. It is very difficult to, um, you know, get legal rights to influence whether she can have a baby or not. So it's a, you know, it's another issue. Is mm-hmm. I don't believe she would have the capacity to care for another life, but um, legally that is a very, very sensitive issue. Also, anyway, which brings up another point. I think, if I may interrupt you for just oh, a minute, of course, is it a legal issue? Is it a political issue? Is it a personal issue? Yeah. Is it a social issue? Does it involve society at large? Yeah. Yeah. I don't have an answer to any of them. Well, I do. It's not a political issue. And uh, that I'm pretty clear on. Yeah. Um, Does uh, does the World Health Organization have anything to say on this topic that you know of? Oh, my gosh. I've never looked at that. That's an excellent question. Yeah. In terms of the rights of individuals and... I mean, not just women, right? Because is it is it true that men can also bear children these days? Really? <laughs> Maybe I've been watching too. They can certainly father them. <laughs> Maybe I've been watching too many TikTok videos. 
I, I don't know the answer to that one. I mean, but um, I understand. You really needed to be a part of it. You know, I have to do some more research on that and I'll, I'll revert. <laughs> well, tell us more about Carolyn. In the book, do you talk about her upbringing and the influence of her parents in, in the equation? I I talk about her upbringing which was rather nice. She certainly had a, came from a good family, a good home, a well-educated home. And one of the factors that I brought in was that, and this may not be true now, but a lot of times when girls, young women have gotten pregnant, it's within a year of losing a very significant person, like a mother, a father, or a sibling. So it becomes kind of a replacement issue. Right. And so Caroline's father, she's one of five children, I believe. Caroline's father and brother were killed. And frankly, I don't remember, <laughs> wrote the book, how could I not remember, uh, whether they were killed in a plane crash or a private plane crash or a car accident or what, but they both died at the same time. Right. Which makes it more probable for her to get pregnant and to well, then what does she do? And it's interesting because in that same line, uh, I've worked with a number of teenage girls who become pregnant and who say, I finally will have someone to love me. Mm. And I'm like, oh, no, that's not why you have a child. Yeah. you know." Or they say, I finally will have someone to love. I finally will have someone to love and to love me. Yeah. And these are 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds who were telling me this from very damaged families. You know, the parents aren't still together. They've been, the girls have been sexually molested, you know, or they've, you know, they some of them have been living on the street. And so they're very, they're not in a good position to love another person, to have an, uh, an infant, to have an infant love them. They don't know how to deal with the frustration of a crying infant that you're, tr you're comforting and they still keep crying. Yeah. You know, it's like it requires an incredible amount of patience yes. to be up at 1230 at night when you have to go to work the next day and you have this child who is in great discomfort. You don't know why. Yeah. And you're walking the floor comforting this child. Or in many instances, I know of couples who have to put the child in the car and drive around the neighborhood for two hours. Oh, yeah. Till the I, child, think... <laughs> till the child, yeah. I, I didn't have one like that, but the child finally falls asleep. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a and very good reason. The next day. This is a very good reason to give all parents, uh, you know, behaviorally based parent training <laughs> You create an absolute nightmare for yourself like that. When I was teaching and a principal, U.S. government was required for one semester, U.S. history for two semesters, and consumer ed or civics or whatever you want to call it, how to live your daily life, how to have a bank account, et cetera, et cetera. All of those were required courses in high school to graduate. Yeah. And that is not the case now. And I... I'm not clear on which ones are and aren't, and it depends upon the state. Now, when someone walks into their 
They have a job. They have a full-time job. They have a wife. They have kids. And they walk into a store and they don't know how to fill out. This is in the days when people had checkbooks. They don't know how to write out a check. And the person behind the counter who's checking them out has to tell them. You put the date here. You write the digits here. You put the name of the store here. You write out the number and then has to spell some of the letters for them. And then you sign it down here. I'm sorry, that's not good material for raising a child. You know, you don't know the basics. So, and then the other thing I've always thought, even when I was in high school and never, ever thought of getting married or having kids, I mean, the thought just never crossed my mind. Why don't we teach these children in high school, these teenagers, mid teenagers, how to be a parent? And one of the classes when I lived in Topeka, one of the high schools had a course in, I don't know, family life, whatever they called it. And you had to carry a 10-pound bag of sugar with you wherever you went. Yeah. And yeah, and you couldn't just put it down somewhere and walk off without it. And then other classes uh, in other communities gave them a doll that had a certain weight to it. And you had to carry this doll around. You had to feed it, you know, and it was programmed to cry if it, you know, at certain times. They have that that here. I was um, at the track not long ago and one of the athletes was running there, young athlete. She had, I I didn't know why, I thought it was a real baby. And uh, she was passing it around between her other teammates. Yeah, this baby was crying a lot, let me tell you. (laughs) And so she was running, you know, her hundreds and then, they were sharing the baby and then she was coming back to hold the baby. And you could see, you know, she was pretty frustrated. So this is, yeah, it's a, it's a constant. But I'm imagining that project probably goes on for a week, something like that. Oh, yeah. No, these, the ones that I'm aware of went on for longer than a oh, week. Oh, really? Was, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, two weeks, a month. You know, it was it was definitely longer. And to teach you, you know, the the responsibility. And I know one girl in this town or in a town in which I lived, said one of her sisters was pregnant as a teenager. And she said, I am never, ever going to get pregnant and have a child. I don't want children, period. And probably 10 or 15 years later, when she was 10 or 15 years older than being a teenager herself, she had a child. But at that point, she was more ready to be a parent and had some experience. And I can see that. I mean, not everybody needs to wait. Some people are mature enough when they're 22 or, I don't know, about 18. I know several of my own relatives, one, two, three, I can think of right off the bat, were mothers by the time, oh, more than that, actually, were mothers by the time they were uh, 20 years old. They were still teenagers. So You said something interesting before. You said, that wanting to create another human being that loves you is is not a good reason to have a child. Yeah. Why do you think we, we have children? Obviously, there is an evolutionary drive, for want of a, a better word, in us. I, I would think there probably is. Given that we're talking to the queen of drive and urges and those things. <laughs> I, you know, I think, it, yeah, it has to do with, well, actually, I, I've had 
several different responses from people. One of my sisters-in-law said, she was probably 40, uh, still young enough to have a child. And she said, well, I thought about it for a week. <laughs> and I decided that wasn't, I, or I wanted to do that for a week. <laughs> and then when I was in my mid-30s, and then I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she was a marvelous aunt to all of her. Yeah nieces and nephews, you know, but she just realized and she's she literally thought about it for a week and decided, Yeah, well, that's me. Well, and I, that's I remember me. my sister, I have an older sister, she's seven years older. And my daughter with autism, she was a very difficult baby. I mean, I thought my first daughter, my first beautiful daughter was challenging, but then along came Juliet and whoo, and uh, she came to stay with us when Juliet was quite young. And she's like, right, I'm going home to have my ch- tubes tied <laughs> because if that is in my genetics, I can't, I can't live with that. I can't live like that, you know. Wow. I wouldn't change anything um, no matter how hard it is. I have Julia and she's a big part of my life and I would never change anything. But that was her experience. If that's what's coming my way, I <laughs> So there you so go. Does she have no children? She is, has no children, wow. two nieces, but that was very a big part of her decision-making. Right. So, yeah, there you go. It's everybody's yeah. experience, isn't it? But, um, it is. It is. I can remember one uh, married couple I knew. They definitely did not want children. They got a divorce, they remarried, and they each had a child. Each had a child then, yeah. Yeah, right. So it's like, well, does that mean they were with the wrong person? I don't think I can say that. It's just, you know, they changed their minds. And I have no problem if someone has a vasectomy. Well, and a lot of people in the States have recently chosen to, a lot of men have chosen to have vasectomies and women have chosen to have their tubes tied because they don't, they don't want children at all. And no, they're not always reversible, or if they are, they're not easily reversible in all situations. So it requires, in my opinion, a lot of thinking, a lot of talking. And I I regret that Roger Rosenblatt's book and my book are the only ones that, I mean, there are probably more now. In 2013, I think his and mine were the only ones that were on the market. And they, I don't think either one of them, you would not classify either one of them as being a bestseller because I don't know why. I don't know whether it's an issue that people don't want to look at. I didn't market it in 2013 because I thought, well, given the tenor of the times, can I stand up in front of a group of 25 people, 50 people? and feel comfortable talking about this in 2000 in 1995 I definitely didn't yeah and I lived in Kansas where the state where George Tiller a doctor who performed late-term abortions was murdered in a in the church that he went to and I will never forget that because this man was not aborting healthy survivable fetuses He was, what I would consider that he was doing was he was giving an early birth to children 
whose parents were already traumatized because they knew the child was not going to make it more than a day or going to be severely handicapped for the rest of their lives. I mean, I've worked with children in the 70s, in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s. I worked with children who were deaf, blind, couldn't talk. One child, only there were, there was a whole ward of them, probably 12 or 15 of them. You know, they couldn't walk, they couldn't talk, they couldn't hear. You know, they're 10 years old, 12 years old. They're still in diapers. Yeah. You know, it's like, what do you do, you know, as a parent? And I'm not telling any parent who knows they're going to have a handicapped, a disabled child that they need to not have that child. I'm just saying it's something you really need to think about. Yeah. And you need to think about the fact that a severely disabled child like that is going to cost you as the parent, and this is a statistic from 30 years ago, $100,000 to raise. I mean, just with $100,000 a year with this disability. Yeah. yeah. And no family can afford that. So society steps in. I don't have, believe me, I do not have a problem with that at all. And I am a firm believer in national health care, which this country doesn't even have yet. If somebody has a child like that, and often it's unexpected, they do need society's help because otherwise, you know, or the mother may need to quit. Both parents can't work. And where was it recently? There was a, a father couldn't work because there was no mother in the home. I believe she had died. And he had a child with a disability and somebody had to stay at home. Well, for him, it was less expensive for him to stay at home with the child than it was to hire an educated enough person to take care of a child with a disability. And there aren't a whole lot of people running around who put an ad in the paper that says, I want to take care of a child with a disability when the parent works full time. And I'll, I'll get paid only uh, minimum wage, which in some state, states is $7.50. Yeah. I'll get paid minimum wage to do this. I, it doesn't, there aren't people lining up to do this. Yeah. And, um, and I know there's now a baby in a box program or something like that, where you can go to a place if you don't want a child. And with abortion becoming illegal in this country, you open the drawer, you put the baby in there, you close the door, and you walk away. Boy. And, yeah, I, it's so when the person on the other side opens the drawer, they have no idea, well, it's not going to take long before they can tell if the child's mother was on drugs because the child will show symptoms of severe drug abuse by the parent. And or the mother and possibly the father, if it happened at conception. I had a child in my office one day. She wasn't a child. She was 21. In my office, crying. She had dwarfism, severe emotional problems, and something else. I can't remember what it was. And she said, my parents were high when I was conceived, and that's why I have these disabilities. And I so wish my mother had had an abortion. Gosh. I mean, honestly, Mandy, I had no idea what to say to this person. 
I mean, I, I couldn't say, it wasn't appropriate of me to say, I'm glad you're here, because she was just trying to get her emotions out and say, my parents made a mistake. I've never, ever had anyone but her tell me that. Yeah. And she was, she had very, very serious emotional problems. And so, and behavior problems. So I, I don't know what, I, 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 to this day, I don't know what to say to her. Yeah. Uh, what I would say to her. It's like my grandmother, my grandmother said to my mother, her daughter-in-law, I don't know why you got to keep your three daughters and I didn't get to keep any of mine. It took me 40 years to come up with what my response to that would be. My mother was so dumbfounded, she said nothing. 40 years later, I realized I would have said, it's a very formal relationship, I would have said, I am so sorry, Mrs. Cawkin, that you, I mean, they didn't even call one another by first name, that that happened to you. But I feel, I don't know whether kind is the right word, but I feel that the least I could have done is to offer you my three daughters as your granddaughters. Now, the fact that this was a part of my, my mother told me this when I was five, six years old. Yeah. And she told me this frequently in my life. And the fact that it took me 40 years to figure out what I would have said to her. Yeah. To me is, is pretty significant. So am I going to, Tell someone, yes, you're pregnant. You know, somebody comes to me and says, I'm pregnant. I, I have had people come to me. I don't know what to do. I'm 50 years old. My husband has a very responsible position in society. Our, all our children are grown. What should I do? First of all, it's not my position to tell her what to do. Yeah. Or a 30-year-old who comes to me and says, I am pregnant and this embryo or fetus is not in good shape and is not going to survive or is going to be have disabilities. Um, I don't have an answer. So yeah. what I did in the book, the Caroline letters was, I looked at, I wrote the beginning, part one is the book of the relationship and getting pregnant. And then, oh, well, great. What do you do now? So part two, and the parts could have been in any order. Part two, Caroline, excuse me, the mother in this situation of Caroline decides to give her up for adoption. You know, she goes wiffle waffles back and forth. In part three, she decides to have an abortion. In part four, she decides to keep the child, even though she's not married, and there's no chance that they will. And then what I did was I wrote a letter to the adopted Caroline, the aborted Caroline, and the kept Caroline 21 years later right. to say why I made the decision I did. Uh-huh. I think I cried in every. I think I cry. I cry as I write every book I write. Well, except for the one I'm working on right now, which is a, a technical one. 
but the novels and the nonfiction books, you know, they're, they're a whole different kettle of fish from writing a uh, professional technical book, so to speak. You know, it's, it's very difficult. I did have one person tell me who had read the book. I really, she didn't have any children. She was probably about 40 and she was not going to have any children. And she read the book and she said, I really appreciate that book because I had never thought beforehand what I would do. And she said that reading that book made me realize what my options would have been and how I, what kind of a decision I would have had to make and how I would think about it afterwards, how I would come out of that. And she said, I know I never needed to get pregnant, but you know, I can, I, she could see the, the process. I'm sure there are people who would say to me, I never should have written the book or never should have had the section on abortion, never should have had the section on adoption. I mean, I know there are some adoptive mothers who are angry about the situation that they gave their child up for adoption before it was before there was really any discussion at all it was more of a i'm 16 years old it's 1950 what am i going to do well in 1950 there was pretty much only one well there were two options you could have the child and you you know you stay home the whole time and your mother walks around as if she's pregnant yeah and she keeps the child and raises her as your sister and it's like well that would be kind of strange i would think but yeah Yeah. i know i know people who have done that and people who as adults have talked to me about that happening yeah yeah and the baby baby grows up thinking that too right right absolutely the baby is reared to think that agnes is her 15 year older sister yeah and not her mother yeah. And yeah. meanwhile, Agnes is expected to go on with the rest of her life as if, you know, she has this baby sister. And I don't know how often that happens, but I do know I have had a couple of people tell me that happened to them. Yeah. And then the the other scenario is that you're you're sent away. My own um my mum is adopted and her mother was got pregnant to an American soldier actually in Australia. He was here just in port. So, yeah, she was sent up into the hills here to have the baby. And then, yeah, so my mother was adopted. But, yeah, now now, um, and, and she ends up ended up meeting her actual mother who went to live in America. But, yeah, that, that was the other option, right, that you were sent away to have the baby as if it hadn't happened. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And one of the things I did was I checked every book out of the library on adoption. And, you know, some people saying how they weren't like anybody in their family, but then when they met or read about or heard about their biological parent, that that's who they are like. And then others who say, I have nothing in common with my biological family. Uh, And one of my nieces has said, you know, I got all these physical problems. What was my biological family like? I think she's found one parent. The other one had died. 
I'm not sure whether she has an answer to that question or not. But, uh, you know, it may be that, you know, she was a fluke in that way. I have no idea. But the other thing I've learned is the question. I've yet to meet someone who was adopted, and this, and I know they are out there, but I've yet to meet someone who was adopted who said, it doesn't matter to me what they were like. I am who I am, and these are my parents. But most of them that I have talked to, which is pretty subjective probably, but I'd say the 25, 30, 50 that I've talked to, you know, wonder, yeah. what is that family like? What was the relationship? And and I met another one who had prom picture of her parents and said, they were babies. They were just children. Yeah. But look, aren't they adorable? Isn't he handsome? Isn't she beautiful? But still, you know, and it was adopted by a lovely family and still has questions. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, I tried to check out all the books that this library had on abortion, which in the card catalog was about the same amount. It was obviously a while ago, if I'm talking about card catalogs, but it was probably three quarters of a drawer on of books on adoption and three quarters of a drawer on books on abortion. The interesting thing is, of the books on abortion, only three of them were in the library consistently. And I'm, and I'm looking, it took me a while, probably a year. And I finally said, where are these books? She said, people take them and they don't bring them back. Right. And I, I remember loaning one of my students a book. She was 14, uh, 14, maybe 15. And on the Japanese custom, that when someone had an adoption, there's a statue that you have, and it goes in a certain, you know, there's a like a park, a hall, a building, a, a room, whatever, for uh, the statues of children who were aborted. And she was, I think she told me she was pregnant, but I'm not sure. And I think it, you know, it might have been a situation where she got pregnant by her stepfather. But anyway, she was distressed. I said, you know, I really want this book back. I don't remember her name. Because I'm working on a book on when somebody gets pregnant and doesn't plan on being and isn't married. And, and she promised me, and she was somebody that I believed. I never saw that book again. And I finally thought, you know what? She obviously needed that book a lot more than I did. Yeah. I wouldn't even recognize her, especially now. But even if she was still 15, I wouldn't recognize her if I walked down the street because yeah. this was, you know, 40 years ago. I, I think probably if I have any answer, if someone were to ask me, what should I do? I would have to do what my father always did or do what Socrates did, yeah. which is, what do you think you ought to do? What are your options? What do you want to do? And wanting to do and ought to do are not necessarily the same thing. It's tough. Yeah. It really is. And I think to have a black and white answer is not, it's not a black and white situation. Yeah. I don't know 
what I would have done if I had been pregnant and had known I had a child with a potential disability. I honestly don't. And I mean, I've had, I've had enough miscarriages to say, well, that probably wasn't going to make it. Or that one was probably going to be disabled in some way. Yeah. And so you just have to deal with that and live with that. And I guess, um, you know, it's complicated by the fact that as medicine changes, there'll be more ability to look at the status of the fetus, right? We get more right. and more information about the status of the fetus. It's going to become more and more complicated in terms of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. child you keep mm-hmm. and child you don't. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, how did your experience of becoming a mother and being a mother influence the way you wrote this book, your own journey? Well, I was 28 when I got pregnant and 29 when my son was born. Um, I figure <laughs> probably had enough <laughs> That's good math. to make a reasonable decision yes. at that point in my life. But I also was working full time. I knew that my husband and I were not going to make it as a, as a couple. And I knew he would not make a good father. I knew he was intelligent. He was ambitious in what I would consider the right way. He wasn't going to knock people down for his own ambition. He just was focused on what his skills were and what he could do in life. His ability to get along with people was abominable. And he came from a good family. His family was so welcoming to me as his girlfriend first, as a as his wife, as a parent, um, about to be mother of his child. It was really good. I mean, his his family was much better than he was as far as participating in in that. That did not play in my decision, though. One of the things that played in my decision was. Why would two people suggested I have an abortion because they could see the relationship was falling apart? And I thought, why, when I've already lost two pregnancies, do I want to lose one that might be viable? And it turned out was viable. And then I had another miscarriage after that. So I'm I'm very happy that I ended up, I'm happy I ended up with one child. Out of three pregnancies, I ended up with one child. And I didn't have to go through what my grandmother went through, you know, which was she had four pregnancies. She had one child, but she lost the other three in a much more. An earlier miscarriage to me was less traumatic than if I had lost a child at birth or at age five or something. And I remember one of my my teachers, when I was a building principal, I called the staff was my staff. You know, they were my teachers. One of my teachers called me up at, they all knew, I. everybody on staff knew I got up at 4 a.m. This one woman called me uh, at 4 a.m., probably 4.03, 4.05. And she had just had a miscarriage. She was absolutely devastated. And she was alone in the hospital. And she needed somebody to talk to. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm really glad that I have been open enough in the 70s, I think it was, to be able to say that I've lost a couple of pregnancies. And that gave her the option of calling me 
at four o'clock in the morning. She knew I was awake and there was nobody else in town who was going to be awake that she knew who had had, you know, that same experience. And, right. This uh, is your habit of getting up very early for long, for many, many decades to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when that. when uh, I used to be a stay up till one or two o'clock in the morning person. And then I had this baby and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, he wanted to, he was ready to go to sleep. I was ready to go to sleep when I came home from work, fed him, fed me and went down for the night. Well, he didn't get down for the night, but I did. And, you know, he was right beside me so I could pick him up out of the cradle, literally had a wooden cradle a friend had made, picked him up and nursed him and put him back in the cradle. So I thought, I'm not getting any writing done. And so I need to wake up at five in order and then get ready, get him ready, and go to work. Well, then soon, five o'clock, was <laughs> not enough time, so then I started getting up at four. Yeah. And so for about 50 years, I got up at four o'clock in the morning. Wow, yeah. And now now I don't. I get up at six, and yeah. which seems very late to me, but much more reasonable. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's interesting to me to have lived in the times of illegal abortion, legal abortion, and now we're moving into illegal abortion. And frankly, I don't think that's going to work because I think since the late 70s, excuse me, was it the late 70s? I can't remember. Sometime in the 70s, women's rights became a much more predominant aspect of at least U.S. society. I don't know about Australia, Canada. Well, and the U.K. society, too. I think there are too many people who aren't willing to go backwards yeah, and go back to what it was like in the 1940s or 1910 or the 1500s. World War II didn't give women the right to work. It required women to work to support the war effort. Yeah. And, and so that became a norm, although the woman at home was still the norm as well. And once the war was over, World War II, then the woman went back into the house, but she didn't stay there. Yeah. And it exploded in the 70s when then women began to demand more the right to work and uh, I can't remember what year it was in Australia when women had to resign from their jobs when they got pregnant or at least oh, yeah 1970 I, I, I clearly remember <laughs> there, were, there were three of us pregnant in the building the other two uh resigned and they were going to we were teachers they were going to stay home and take care of the baby and then it was I think in the beginning of April that I said to the group that I worked with, gee, our contracts haven't come back yet. Usually they're back by now. And all of a sudden I had this blank series. I mean, there were like five, four women in front of me and they were just, their faces went absolutely blank. And I said, Oh, did you get yours back yet? And they said, yes. So I went up to the school director and said, why did I not get my contract back? 
And he said, because you are pregnant. (laughs) That's not what you say to me. My mother got married in, wasn't her first year of teaching, but she got married uh, over spring break. And uh, on the front page of the Boston paper in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, were these articles about the poor old school board couldn't decide whether to fire her on the spot or let her stay till the end of the year and fire her at the end of the year. But they couldn't have a married teacher on staff. And so here was I, that was 1928. Here was I in 1970 confronted by a similar situation. I was pregnant, therefore I could not teach. Yeah. And that was the ultimate outcome? Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, what happened was obviously finishing out the school year, and I wasn't a classroom teacher. I was a program coordinator at that point. I got a phone call one day from someone at the University of Oregon who said, hmm, I hear you. You're not going to be back at the school next year. And I said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, I'm offering you a job. Well, my gosh, he offered me a job at twice the salary that I was making as a teacher, flexible hours, which was very unusual in the 70s, uh, in 1970. And uh, so I worked on this uh, grant project And I did a lot of work at home. I would go back. I'd stay up until 2 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning working, uh, take my child, my infant, to the babysitter and stay home and work more or keep him at home and and go into work sometimes at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The important thing was get the work done. You can't stay home and just take care of your baby. You have a job. You have to get the work done which is what happened during COVID. So for a totally different reason. Yeah. Did you want to talk at all about the court case? Because that's sort of been the impetus for the recent discussions about your book. Is that fair to say? Yes. I don't know as I know that much about this court case. Yeah. Beyond what its conclusion was. Yeah. And what what, what is the legal issue at point in the case wow Uh, the first thing that comes to mind my mind is what is the political issue what is the social issue yeah not what is the legal issue because i think it goes back to a social issue and a political issue and this kind of is diverging from the topic of whether abortion is legal or not legal but I think that my country, the United States, and I really can't speak for Canada, the UK, uh, France, or Australia, or other countries in the world. The issue is not pregnancy. The issue is society is changing, and it's changing dramatically. And those people who want it the way it always has been, which is a male-dominated culture. I don't care whether you're an Amazonian culture, an African culture, an Asian culture, a Tibetan culture. I don't care what culture you are. But for thousands of years, the dominant role has been 
that the male is in charge and the woman is in charge of the children. And that where we are, we stay. Those are two separate issues. The problem is migration right now because of climate change, whether people like to acknowledge it or not, it is happening and it is happening far more rapidly than what we thought. And so people are moving and oh my goodness, all of a sudden we have people from Africa and parts of Asia moving into Europe. All of a sudden we have people from Central and South America wanting to come North into the United States. And all of a sudden we have, and we have had this for a while, we have interracial marriage. You know, what are we going to do with this? Well, the thing we do with this is we drop, we drop the iron block on the ground and we say, you can't cross it. And this is the way it's going to be. And this is the way it's always been. Well, it hasn't always been that way. It's been that way for the last 50 years or 100 years or something like that. And you want to go back to the way it is. But the world doesn't work that way. Human life doesn't work that way. And we have massive change that we are undergoing. And as someone that I was just talking to the other day, who is an Alaska native and part Irish and something else, we'll say she's, what else could it be? Oh, we'll, we'll say she's, um, I'll say part black because that's a possibility but it's not, that's not what this person is. So if we're going to make it that there's no option for what to do during a pregnancy, that there, as is suggested now, there is no option for interracial marriage anymore. That's also on the table. This woman said, <laughs> so what do I do? <laughs> she said, I'm three races, only in my book, we're only one race. It is the human race. It is not a black. Black is not a race. Asian is not a race. American Indian, South American Indian, those are not races. The race is human beings. Mm. And we need to accept that. And I know it's hard. And I had one very good friend say, I know it's coming. And I don't like it. I don't like the fact that soon I, as a white male, will be a minority in this country. And I hope I die before that happens. And, well, as it turned out, he did. But it's like, you know, there are, and I, and I miss him. And I, that truly was one of my first thoughts. Well, friend, you know, you, you got your wish. I'd rather you still be here, but you got your wish. And your family would rather you still be here. I don't know whether you ever told them that wish or not, but our culture, our whole worldwide culture is changing. Yeah. And I think abortion and uh, racial identity is just one way of saying, I don't want it to change. I don't want it to change. Well, yeah. I'm sorry. It's changing. Yeah. The The other thing I think about, choice is that choice is there and you can choose 
to have a child, keep the child, give the child up for adoption, have an abortion. If abortion is illegal, there is no choice. There's only one option. And you, you have to go with that option. And to me, that's not what a democracy or a republic is about. It's not about you have to follow this way. I think we saw well how the Hitler regime worked, the Mussolini regime, the Soviet Union. They collapse. You want one thing that most of the people don't want, whether they be quiet or whether they be verbal. And it will collapse. And with much trauma caused to many people. So I think I might have gotten a little bit off of the option of choice. But if there is, if abortion is illegal, there is no option of choice. You are demanded to live that pregnancy out. The people I feel desperately sorry for are those who know they are carrying a child with a disability that they don't want in their lives. And I feel sorry for the families that have five children and cannot afford another one or have two children and cannot afford another one. You know, my heart goes out to these people. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough, tough situation. And I think individuals need to be able to make that choice for themselves. If they have four children and want another one, fine. I have a very good friend who has nine, Mm. you know, and he and his wife can afford nine children. They're not wealthy, but they they can afford nine children. You know, his siblings think he's crazy, but I don't think he's crazy. I don't feel it's the most responsible thing to do when we are becoming overpopulated, but that's not my choice. Their life, their lifestyle is not my choice, but they are both still good friends of mine. Yeah. Well, there's many things I wish I had done before uh, recording this podcast. I wish (laughs) I had read a few more things and been in touch with the court case a little bit more. But I have a thousand questions to ask you about what I am going to say, though. Just you kept some data during your birth, didn't you? Uh, During your pregnancy, I should say. During my pregnancy, yes, I did. I have. Can I ask you what what data you kept? Oh, yes. I kept, oh, it was really great. I I was so excited to be pregnant that I started counting what I thought were fetal kicks or fetal movement. Yeah. Um, Turns out they weren't all kicks. Some of them were movement. And I started too soon. And so I was counting stomach squabbles, you know, arguments my stomach was having with itself. Right. Or my, or whatever. And so, and then all of a sudden, nothing happened for a week. Well, I knew enough to know that if that were true, then I didn't have a live fetus because uh, you have movement at least every, within a 24-hour period. Right. And so I have a chart that shows false information. I shouldn't, it's not false information. It's um, my abdomen disagreeing with itself and then (laughs) no no movement so i have an actual beginning and then i have the celebration wow Uh, you know the dots with the celebration and the interesting thing to me that was fascinating 
was, let's see, that was 1970, probably about 15 years ago. I love the Northern Lights. They've, or the Aurora Australis, if, if I were down there. I mean, I'll get out of bed in the middle of the night and get in my car and go up to a clear area and sit and watch them. I don't care how cold it is. And one night, out of all my years of watching the Aurora, one of them looked exactly like my fetal kicks chart. Wow. Deep curve for about three weeks. This is what the chart had for about three weeks. And then it leveled off. And then it went up a little bit, spiked up a little bit, and then it dropped down. And I had a C-section. So from my chart, what I don't have is the normal drop down and then which occurs and then and then a whole lot of action the last 24 hours, which means you're about to have a baby. Wow. I, I missed that. But I have other charts that have that on there. And lo and behold, after 24 hours of well, I got to rearrange, you know, I, you know, this room is not designed right. I've got to rearrange things before I can get out of here. So, so what are the other charts you have? Probably have, and they're down in Oregon, I'm afraid, probably have about a half a dozen of them. Of other um, Of other people's pregnancies. Wow. So you had other people, other precision teachers that did the same? Yes, yes. Oh. Um, one of them is published in Science Magazine. Really? Uh, yeah. And I can get you the date of that okay. later nice. and send it to you. That'd be a wonderful um, And then the other ones, I don't think I have any other ones up here. I think they're all down in Oregon. And I'm not At sure that point, I... This is an interesting subject, right? At what point does does a fetus become a life, if you like? At what point do you, did you first feel movements that you four can... Months. Four months. Four wow. Months. Okay. This movement at three months was not fetal movement at all. It was my body. Yeah. It was my body, I don't know, saying, ah, there's something different going on here. I don't know what it was doing. And um, did, did your obstetrician help you identify that? No. You went to that. Matter of fact, I don't think I ever showed him the chart, right. and which is unfortunate. Now, the epileptologist, I've shown him the chart of seizure activity. Yeah. And after looking at that, then he's interested in that. But I don't have another half a dozen people who have done that. I only have one other person who has done that. And so that really put you in contact with this pregnancy, right? Literally. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I knew who this fellow was. Yeah. And, And I could look at other people's charts and see that they had much more active fetuses than I had. Right. Or they had less active fetuses. And at the same time, or very close to it, my one of my sisters-in-law was pregnant, and sister-in-law being my now ex-husband's sister. So there was a biological relationship between the two fetuses. And I can't remember right offhand what hers looked like. I don't think we were pregnant at exactly the same time. And But one of the things that was interesting was some of the women who counted were not able to count all day. They were not able to count. And But even counting for a portion of the day, like five or six hours consistently each day, showed some information. Now, one of the things that is interesting is that 
If you have no fetal movement for 24 hours, you do yeah. not have a viable fetus anymore. Really? And, yeah. And that was one of my reasons yeah. because I already had two miscarriages that yeah. I was, I wanted to keep the data because I, I could not lose this one. Yeah. I, I, it just would have absolutely devastated me. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't know what I would have done if I had. Did you find anything and, that influenced movements? Like, was there any food or, oh, yes, or yes, anything yes, that you there was. Right. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I did count was pain sensations. So right. I'll get to that in a minute. What I found was that he was about four and a half months along. Well, I didn't know it was a he. So at that point, he was an it. And I kept calling him an it until he was probably about six months old and everybody kept correcting me. I had three beers and I was halfway through a fourth beer and there was no movement. And I thought, Oh my gosh, this poor fetus is drunk wow. and he's going to sleep. I will never have another drink while I'm pregnant. Good. And I didn't, I was four and a half months pregnant then. Yeah. Four and a half months pregnant. And I'd had, three or four beers and was partway into the next one. And this is over a period of about two hours. Yeah. You know, it was probably 3.2% alcohol or something. It was not very much. And so I thought, okay, that does it for alcohol, yeah. which is one sign to me why mothers, pregnant women should not be drinking alcohol. You put your child to sleep. Yeah. So if you're constantly putting your child to sleep, What's going on with brain development? Well, we now know that you get fetal alcohol syndrome. Yeah. So then the other thing was one time I smoked some pot. And I was probably about seven months pregnant at that time. And oh my gosh, that kid did, I mean, he was dancing in there unbelievably, moving, wow. moving, moving, moving. And I thought, well, that takes care of that. No more pot. And uh, so, you know, I, I didn't do either one of those things. And were you uh, recording every waking hour or did you record a fixed time? Oh, every waking hour. Every, every waking, waking hour. hour. Right. Which for you is quite a few. <laughs> it, at the time, it was about 18 hours. Wow. Right, right, yeah. And then the other thing that occurred was if I had a cramp or meanwhile, I'm in the process of separating from my husband. So it was not a good time. I was, uh, and then I went to oh, a Renaissance festival or something and I'm walking around and I'm all of a sudden I realize I'm cramping. And, and since I was counting them and I real if I remember correctly, the, kicks decelerated a little bit the cramping increased and i thought okay i'm out here walking around i'm going to stop walking around i am going to go find some place to lie down yeah and so and most people at a renaissance festival in oregon in the 70s this was 1970 had some sort of a some of them had a tent set up anyway some casual friend that i came upon had a tent and he said yeah you can go lie down on the cot or sleeping bag in my tent and I did for a couple of hours until I felt better and you know like to give, give us an idea like what 
what would be an average number of movements a day that you would record? My highest was 751. What? Uh -huh. Wow. But I have a couple of charts that are over a thousand a minute. How were how you recording? Not my chart, other it's people's not, charts. Were you using your beads? Your your wristband to record? No, no, no. I was using a golf counter, a clicker golf counter. counter. Right. Yeah, which made it much easier. And then for the cramping, I did use a bead counter right. because they weren't that frequent. And so I could count that. Oh, it would have driven me nuts on a bead counter. Ordinary amount of discipline to do this. I wish I phenomenal. It always blows me away. I always set out to take data and like three hours and I'm like, that's it. I'm <laughs> this is my endurance factor. That that often happens the first day or the first day I'm really attentive to it and the second day I'm not. So I just have to keep doing it. Yeah. And then I, I get into, usually it doesn't take me more than a day or two to get wow. leveled out. That's phenomenal. Well, I, what are you keeping at the moment? What data on yourself? Epilepsy moments, what do yeah. I call them? <laughs> Consists of looking at 12 different behaviors. There is no way that I could count all 12 of those and yeah. make any sense out of the, those yeah. data at all. Reaches, because it's not that I am too heavy and need to lose weight. It's that I gained enough weight that my clothes didn't fit me. Right. And I have a habit of buying really nice clothes. Yeah. And I am not about to go out and spend that kind of money buying a whole new wardrobe. Right. So the option was to lose weight. Having epilepsy actually made that a little bit easier because the best diet for me is the keto diet, right. which is also used for people losing weight. Yeah. That's not why I do it. But so far I've lost uh, 13 pounds, I think. And I want to go for another six. Nice. Wow. Um, so reaches, reaches each time you reach for food? Each time I put something in my mouth. Each time you put something in your mouth. Wow. And then the other thing I'm counting is, which I have not done while we're talking, mainly because we're talking about things that I've already written about, two other behaviors. One is creative writing ideas where I go, oh, aha, oh, got to have, got to write that down right now. And then uh, the other one is just thinks about writing. How am I going to phrase this? How am I going to say that? And right now I'm not counting words written or words edited because I'm editing other people's things. Right. And I decided to be kind to myself and not do that. But as soon as I, probably in November, I'll probably start again, words written and words edited. Once I get enough words written to start seriously editing. So. I think that's it. Now that I have one of those Fitbit, whatever type a person has, yeah, I don't have to count miles yeah. walked. You know, I, I can just, you know, it'll tell me how many steps I've had. And I'm not worried these days if it's not that many because I got to get this book to the publisher. Yeah, right. And then I got to get the presentation ready for acceleration conference in November. Okay, we are back talking with Abigail Corkin about her book, Caroline Letters, which I have now read thanks to deciding to chart my own data on Pages Read. I read it very quickly as a result. 
There you go. There's my hot tip for the use of the chart. To ch- if you want to accelerate your pages read. And it's absolutely delightful to have Abigail talking on the topic of this book, which is probably one of the most sensitive topics uh, we could talk about, Abigail. In, in, in case there is any other topic I can't imagine that brings up so many different issues, uh, legally, emotionally, uh, religious issues, viability issues, medical issues. We've just been talking there. But we're talking about it because, first of all, you're a precision teacher and an author, and so that's why it's relevant to me. Also because there is data in this book, which is very interesting because it's a book that you wouldn't expect to have data in it. And I welcome back Abigail Corkin. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, yes, the book definitely has data in it. I took it from my fetal chart counts. I, I love that. So it's it's real data. So this is a very uh, personal story because if you know Abigail or you know anything about her work, you can immediately feel her presence in this book right early on. And there's quite a few references to um, behavior analysis and psychology in there that jump out at you when you know uh, more about the author. So this book first published in 1995 and this book is set in the 60s. Am I right in saying Correct. Uh, so there's been a lot of uh, legal and legislature change in uh, in the, in this issue. So Not only in the United States, but also in the UK. Yes. Um, okay. And in Canada and in many other countries. I haven't of gone to see how many yeah. other countries. And, and we'll get to that in a minute. Then this book relaunched second edition in 2013. And now we're talking on this book, which we're about to tell you more about because of some recent uh, legal changes in the states in relation to the rights of a fetus. It's fair to say. So this is The Caroline Letters. I love this book. I read it probably faster than any book that I've read before because I had a deadline (laughs) of today. (laughs) And because I was, I surprisingly loved this story because a lot of you comes out in this book. So this book is written as a journal of someone that gets pregnant and has to make a decision, remembering based in the 60s. And through the process, you divide the book into three areas, keeping the baby, adopting the baby, and then having an abortion. So it's a very interesting way. It reminds me a little bit, I hope you don't mind me making this comparison, of Sliding Doors, if you've seen that movie. where Oh, so in that story, um, Gwyneth Paltrow is the actress and she goes to get on a train and in one part of the story she makes it on the train she gets home and she finds her partner having an affair with somebody else and on the other side the door closes and she doesn't make the train and so she misses that contact uh, misses that opportunity to catch her husband and um, her, her life goes into very different trajectories so this is uh, a story of a lady that has to make a decision about her baby, and she writes in each scenario, she writes a letter to her daughter. And it's a very emotional, very beautiful story. And so let me ask you, Abigail, um, how you came to write this story. You, you mentioned earlier that you dreamt yourself that um, you were pregnant and turned out to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I, I dreamt... Well, yeah, when I was pregnant with my son, I woke up probably six hours after we'd gone to sleep. My husband woke up. We both had to go to work. And I said, I'm pregnant. 
And he said, how long have you known this? And I said, about six hours. <laughs> and uh, he believed me. I mean, you know, it wasn't a question of lack of belief between one another. I think he might have questioned it at first. How do you know that? And I said, well, I just do. You know, that that's what happened to me. I had a dream last night that I had this boy and you were there. And so I'm pregnant and I'm going to have a son. Everybody told me I was going to have a girl. I did not have a girl. I had a boy. So the character in the story, Caroline, her partner is Jeff. She dreams she's having a girl, and which is why she writes to this baby. And she even names the baby, doesn't she, so that she can write to her? Caroline. Caroline. And (laughs) so she writes her story to Caroline in each of these three scenarios. Now, I said to you earlier that it's particularly interesting as a behavior analyst because get a real context of this girl's life, her upbringing, so you know about her history and then you know about her current environment as well and things that influenced her in each of the three scenarios in terms of how she made a decision. So I just wanted to ask you how you came to write this book and then a little bit about, I guess, what you and I have talked about is that it raises a lot of questions but it doesn't give any answers. So how did you first come to write the book? And then let's talk about, to take, I guess, a little bit of emotion about it is that you are not providing any answers in relation to the rights of women to keep or not to keep babies, but really just asking a lot of questions. And at the end of the book, there are a lot of questions raised, aren't there, for people to think about? Right, there are. There are. Right, so that was two stories, Um, two questions in one. So how you came to write the book, and then we'll talk about, I guess, why you wrote the book. Okay, how I came to write the book was, uh, well, you know, I'm I'm growing up in an era when abortion was illegal and when adoption was you left wherever you lived and you went somewhere else yeah, and never told anybody. And then you came back as if you'd been on holiday for six months or something in some exotic foreign country or, or some uh, nobody would ever say. I don't know what you even call them, home for unwed mothers, you know, a a town 200 miles away in an era when people didn't travel that much. So you just said, oh, I went to boarding school or, oh, I I decided to go to a different university or drop out of university for a while. You came up with some excuse. So, and I watched this happen to people. I watched them disappear, young women disappear. I watched them come back. It's like, oh, I went to a different boarding school or my parents sent me here or there. And and it was not kindly treatment for the most part, as far as I could tell that the girls received. It wasn't that it was cruel. It was just, you were made to feel ashamed that you were pregnant and not married and a teenager or, you know, whatever the situation might have been. And then... In the States in 1973, Roe v. Wade came along, and we sort of knew it was coming ahead of time. I I remember people saying to me, well, you and Ed aren't married, so maybe you should have an abortion. Or no, not maybe. You should have an abortion. And I said, that's not what I want to do, and that's not what I'm going to do. And I never expected Ed to ask me to marry him, and he did, and I did. and. We were married for slightly under a year because, uh, you know, we loved one another. I mean, we loved one another until he died. But can I live with that man? No. Could he live with anybody? No. And I'm very happily married to somebody for the last 50 some years. So, you know, it's not 
it was not a, a that kind of an issue for me. I did not expect that I would ever meet this man when I was seven months pregnant, and I did. And you know, the rest the rest of that is history. It it, it just I felt very passionate about it, and then I started watching young women my age and younger and and older having children without being married, and then um, I. Uh, started working with people who worked with women who were having babies who weren't married. And they were doing it by choice. And this was during uh, when abortion became legal. And they could choose whether they wanted to have a child or whether they didn't want to have a child. And, you know, a lot of it depends upon circumstances. A lot of these women had been abused as young people. And that's difficult to be abused and to be a young mother because you don't have your feet on the ground at the age of 16 or 18 when, you're, uh, when you've been abused, whether it's sexually abused by a stepfather or a biological parent or, or a mother. You know, I mean, it's all kinds of different uh, strange things go on. And I just felt that it should, and I think I always have in a way, it should be the, either you could say the person or the people. The man and the woman involved are the two who need to make the decision. If he fails to make a decision, then it's up to her to make the decision. But, you know, it's really nice for her to be able to walk up to somebody and say, I'm pregnant and I don't know what to do. And if abortion is illegal, that's almost not an option. Yeah. I, how are you going to say, I'm pregnant and I'm thinking of doing something illegal? What do you think? Will you help me with this? Yeah. You know, because, I mean, goodness gracious, you know, they're talking about throwing doctors in jail for 10 years or something like this. I mean, it's ludicrous. Mm -hmm. So what this book does is raise a lot of questions, I guess, Mm -hmm. in in the context of some recent change in law in the States. We look at the timetable, though. Roe v. Wade was 1973, I think, founded on... I don't want to comment on the legal side of things because I've <laughs> read Wikipedia and a, you know, and a few commentaries on this issue. It's an extremely complicated legal issue, but I understand was at issue there was the right to privacy, which is, you know, in terms of uh, people's right to have an abortion. There was then a following case in 1982, but it's the most recent case of Hobbes versus Goodness, I meant to clarify the name of the case, but Hobbes is the, the name of the recent determination in 2022 that has basically decided that abortion is illegal and that mm-hmm. the rights do not exist in the constitution to protect people's privacy, et cetera, and that there was an error in law in those earlier cases. So this book is right in the midst of this hot topic. But what's so awesome about it is it looks, it's a very personal account of somebody that was in set in the 60s, though, of her situation in three different contexts of how she came to make a decision. And each one is a very emotional and a lot of you built in there because in each of the cases, I don't want to give away too much about the book because it's such an interesting book to read, but her partner had a big influence on her decision, her mother, mm-hmm. the fact that she was studying and in the midst of a degree her friends and how they supported her through this decision. So it's it raises those questions that someone goes through when they have a baby and they didn't mean to get pregnant. And it really helps you look at someone's personal account of it. 
what would you like to say about, I guess, those questions that you raised? Because they're at the end of the second edition of the book, correct? Yes. Um, to help, I guess, people in that scenario of questions they have to ask. Although that, at least in America, the right for a, a mother to terminate a pregnancy has been taken away. But um, at the time of writing the second edition, it was still the right of people to have an abortion. So Yes, it um, was. Mm-hmm. But I think it's relevant for people that I guess at some point this legislation, this um, case may be overturned. Right, could be. In fact, if I sit back and look at it, and historically from 2,000 years ago to yeah. now, I mean, as according to the Jewish religion and tradition, a fetus is not alive until it is born. Yeah. Which changes. So what we're doing is we're operating on a Christian ethic. Yeah. So whether you're Christian in this country or not, you are going to be judged and you're going to have your behavior determined by a Christian ethic, even if you're not Christian. And I don't know what the Muslim stance on this is, but I, I do know reading recently several on the of the uh, Jewish position, several people commenting on that that it's uh, it may be a fetus, but it's not alive until it's born. And I think the other thing that influences my thinking and might be part of what made me write the book, although I certainly would not have realized it then, but because I realized fairly recently, within the last five years or so, that my mother was born in eighteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. And she voted in the very first election that women were able to vote in in this country in 1920. And she was 21. And and then also, oh, and then her stance on the ERA, she was uh, a very mild-mannered woman, extremely mild-mannered. And I never saw her laugh. I never saw her cry. And she was always very even emotionally and um, and intellectually, just her stability was powerful. And, and she pounded her fist on her secretary that uh, on the, the drop lid on it, that the equal rights amendment had to pass. Yeah. And I just sat there in the living room and stared at her because I had never seen this much emotion out of my mother in her life. Well, it went down by two states. And if she were alive now, she would be, although she did not personally believe in abortion, she would be absolutely adamant as to what was going on, that you cannot treat half of the human race in this degrading fashion. Now, she had been sacked when she got married, correct? She got, uh, yeah, she got sacked. She got fired when she got married in 1928. And I got fired. I was already married when I had my son in 1970. And I was still pregnant, but he did not renew my contract because I was pregnant. And there was somebody else in the school district who uh, then sued the district because we were both due at the same time, roughly the same time. Anyway, she was asking for the, to work the first month, have the rest of the year off, work the last month. And they, did, of course, they didn't want to do that. I guess I'm speaking from the point of view of an administrator at that point. Uh, and she won the case. Right. And whereas what I chose to do was I thought about doing that because I had every right to sue. But I also thought, 
I want to spend my time with my child. I do not want to spend my time in a lawyer's office. I don't want to spend my money in a lawyer's office. I want to spend my money on this little baby I'm about to have. You also want to be part of a workplace that supports women's rights to have a baby and come back to work. So incredible uh, was probably within a week after I had been terminated. I still had the rest of the school year to go. But within a week, I got a call from the University of Oregon saying, hey, I hear you looking for a job. Come work here. Yeah. And so I went to work there with about a $4,000 increase. Yeah. Everything worked work very well. <laughs> yeah, a yeah. great work environment. They didn't care. You know, I yeah. mean, they want they just wanted me to get the job done. And I'd already figured out and laid out a plan as to how I could work and travel across the state and, you know, have this little baby and who wouldn't go with me, obviously. It didn't work out, but that part didn't work out that way. But the working at the University of Oregon was great. And every and then I I have never called for a job interview. I have always been called to come in for a job interview. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I've I've never worried about having a job. Yeah. And, well, that says a lot about who you are. So my next question then of you is maybe I can just ask you about the the data in the book because that's particularly interesting. I knew when I read those numbers. So you, as you read the, uh, you read Amelia's journal, every now and then she will start to, I can't remember the first time that she counts kicks, I guess because she's she's getting in contact with this little human being, right? And she is uh-huh. talking to her, she's talking to Caroline, and it's a very personal journey because she's kind of on this journey on her own a lot of the time. And so she's, she's, getting to know this baby and talking to her and writing to her. And because she's so in contact with her, she starts to feel movements, fetal movements. So talk to me a little bit about that, because these are real, these are real movements, data that you kept. And how did you identify, I can't remember back to the time when I wish I had taken data like that myself, but but when did you first start to take fetal movements? Why did you take them? And then what was it that you were identifying uh, in terms of what a movement was? Well, why did I start taking them? Probably because I took data on anything I could possibly think yeah, of to true. take data on. That's a question and I need <laughs> It just seemed the most natural thing in the world. And yeah. so I started taking data too soon, which was a real advantage because if you have 24 hours with no fetal movement, you do no, you no longer have a live fetus. Yeah. So I, and I didn't know this ahead of time, but I was, I started counting abdominal movements, I guess I would have to say. Right. And it was probably, you know, gas and other things like that for about three weeks. And then it went down and it went down to zero for about a week. And uh, at that point, a friend of mine later on, couple, maybe a couple of weeks, a couple of months later, said, uh, you had no fetal, you didn't have fetal movement. That wasn't fetal movement you were counting. It's probably gas and, uh, you know, rearranging things. I don't know how she put it. But anyway, she was an RN and a very good friend of mine. And I trusted her. And so it's like, OK, so I have rather than starting to count when I had 10 or 30 fetal movements a day, Yeah, I have a record floor of zero. Yeah, I know right. when I had no fetal movement. Yeah. And so 
then after that, I ended up with fetal movement. And, and when did you first start counting fetal movement? I started counting uh, during the third month. So that's too early. The fetal movement itself, I began to feel pretty much at the beginning of the fourth month. Fourth month. Fourth and month. So this, I guess, raises the issue of viability. In the book, uh, Amelia sets herself a deadline of the second trimester, does she, when she's going to make a decision about whether she keeps the baby or not? You know, I don't remember. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> read she the book sets herself a deadline, I think the 1st of September in the book. Oh, right. It is. It's the 1st of September. She's going to make a decision as, as to whether she's going to keep it or not. And, and the baby's uh, born, is it the 15th? October 20th or something like that? Yes. Okay. Not September. I think it was October. Oh, sorry. Okay. Right. Um, so, but she set herself a deadline because that was the time that she could still legally terminate the pregnancy. Wow. No, she couldn't legally terminate the pregnancy because oh. uh, abortion was illegal in London as well as in, okay. in the UK. So she had to do it illegally. She had to do it illegally if she but, so center portion midnight is an illegal abortion. Okay, right. But there was a doctor that was prepared to do it up to a point in time. I don't yeah. remember that I had him say that. He was he was willing to do it. Right, he was willing to do it, but she had set herself a deadline around when she was going to make right. a decision. And that was that was her deadline. That was not. And that was her deadline. Okay, cool. Right, right, right. Yeah. All right. So yeah. you started feeling movements around the fourth month, and I guess there was a time when you first felt the first movement and went, "Oh, that must be it." Yeah, I think I think possibly. Actually, I don't know whether it was the very first one. I think it was probably for my pregnancy. I think it was probably. Um, more of okay this must be what's going on now yeah right and so and it was i mean it was a steep acceleration uh steep growth of probably all uh, day data times 10 times 10 wow in a month or something like that i'd have to go back oh, and look wow. at the chart and you still and, have the charts. Uh, wow. and did you keep all day data yes i did wow. um Okay, according to the book, she, uh, Amil, or Caroline was born the 11th of October, 1964. Yes. And uh, at 7.32 yeah. p.m. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so here's one of those specific <laughs> things. <laughs> looking earlier about uh, what makes someone get in, love precision teaching and go all in and stay. And are those that drift away and don't stay? And one of your uh, things that you identified very early on is that people will tell the time very precisely. That's one of the things right, that right, keeps right, people right. in the community. So there you go. A lot of you shows up in this book. Those all-day fetal movements, I mean, for people that are listening to that, anyone that's taken data on themselves, uh, that will tell you a lot about who Abigail Culkin is because to be so disciplined that you track every fetal movement, I mean, that requires you to obviously be so in contact with your body to identify a movement and then to count it in some capacity and then to chart it. This is this is a lot of discipline. And it's, that wouldn't have been the only data you were taking because you were also taking data on your no. epilepsy at the same time, were you? No, no, I didn't. I, oh, I didn't. Oh, I didn't know I had, oh my gosh, that would have added a whole nother you um, counting? But weren't you counting absent moments or something like that? absence where I just would phase out 
Were you taking data on that as well during your pregnancy? No, I was, what was I taking data on? Let's see, that was 1969, 1970. I yep. was taking data on, oh my gosh, I had probably 10 or 12 different projects going that I was taking data on. Wow. During and, the pregnancy. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And the pregnancy was one of them. And I was counting fetal kicks. And I also was counting cramping because at some points, you know, I wanted to make sure I didn't have a miscarriage. So I was counting cramping as well. And one time, probably he was born in August, the 25th of August, Probably in April or May, I was at a Renaissance fair, um, sort of a hippie festival in those uh, days, 1970. And I was doing a lot of walking around and I was feeling very nervous that I might run into somebody. I don't know why I was afraid of running into somebody, but I was. And um, nor do I know who I was afraid of running into. But um I started cramping a lot and I thought, okay, I do not want to have a miscarriage. Yeah. So I went to somebody that I didn't know very well. And I said, I need to lay down. And so I went and he had a tent out behind. I went and laid down for probably three or four or five hours. And in the meantime, I was also counting fetal movement and I was counting cramping. And, and then when the cramping, then, you held up your little wrist counter and that's what you were using to tell it. That's what I was using yeah. to count it. And so I wanted to make sure that I calmed down and got uh, pains or cramping, whatever I called them, uh, same thing, down to zero, one, two, before I got up and started walking around. And then I went home, uh, which was a long walk, not home, but a long walk to the parking lot and then driving yeah. home. Yes, yeah, so, uh, so literally doing your own own interventions on your pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, that I didn't even think about that. Yes, you're right. It was an early intervention. And uh, the other thing for the book, the Caroline letters, yeah. was because my actual fetal counts versus when uh, Amelia was pregnant were not at the same time of year. They corresponded by two months, but that's not good enough. So I had to take every single day and shift it two months earlier, two months later, whatever it was, I had yeah. to shift it to a different. So I had to look at the count and then I had to go back and look at a calendar, you know, and get the, uh, you know, actually in those days, I couldn't look at a calendar. I had to compute what the calendar was two months earlier. Right. So, you know, that every now and then go back and check myself. What were the maximum number of fatal movements that you had? 746. Wow, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Don't ask me. Wow. I mean, I'll have to go check that, but I think it was seven. It was around seven fifty. It was either seven forty six, seven forty seven, seven fifty one, something like okay, that. So you you do chat a thousand minutes across a thousand minutes, or actual waking yeah, hours. I charted across a thousand minutes, which was actual waking hours for me. That's nearly one a minute. That's it's right. One every minute and a half is it? Uh, no, it's yeah. more than one every minute and a half. More than that. Wow. Yeah, 500 would yes. be a minute and a half. So you are, so, fluent, you are a fluent tellier, right? Because you can right. still have a conversation with someone, be eating or writing and still be collecting data and not. Correct. And it not interrupt the flow of your day. 
there was only one thing that would interrupt the flow of the day and it didn't last for that long. And that would be when the fetus got hiccups. Right. So when the fetus got hiccups, I just had to stop what I was doing and. (laughs) Oh, so every time I, every time I counted his hiccuping, of course I couldn't hear it, but every time I felt his hiccup, I would push my counter. But I couldn't do anything else at that time because hiccups come so close together. Oh, did I? So I was just wow. Yeah. Have you never had the hiccups? Gee, I, yeah, I don't remember. I mean, it's just, I just don't remember it because I wasn't in touch with, you know, I wasn't in touch with what was occurring. So distracted from my pregnancy. Well, anytime you're around somebody with the hiccups, yeah, just tally them and you will see how often. So it it just interrupts everything else in your life at that point. This might only last for about a minute. Yeah, right. Gosh. So you're telling baby hiccups, wait a sec, fetal hiccups, fetal movements, and abdominal cramps. Well, uh, the fetal hiccup, any fetal movement other than the cramping was yeah. all counted together. Right. So okay. a kick, you know, a hand, a, a turning. Oh, that that incredible, oh, my gosh. You know, uh, just that slow turning that almost made me feel nauseous. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, that sort of funny rumbling and rolling around. Yeah. And, uh, and were you aware and, as a result uh, of which position he was in? I tried to figure it out, but I really yeah. was not very good at that. Um, yeah. I do remember one time his foot got caught up uh, underneath my rib cage and I pushed it down. Yeah. And I immediately see, received an incredible swift <laughs> kick in my hand. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I won't do that again. I promise. Good. <laughs> and that was the only time he kicked me. But what was um, the bounce you know, like on the chart? Not very much. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Not very much. I mean, you know, maybe in it sometimes. Gee, I wish I had my chart with me. I've got it over there, but it would take a while to find it. At most, it was times two and very seldom times two. Right. And uh, But one of the things I learned from looking at other people's fetal charts was that in the last 24 hours before the baby is born, that there is an incredible upward movement back to, you know, it goes up, it goes up yeah. steeply, and then it kind of levels off, whether it's at 100 or 700 or 1,000. Babies move differently. Fetuses move differently. And then it goes along and then it goes down, not as steeply as it came up. Yeah. And then it'll go, it'll shoot right up for one day to approximately the high that you had during the pregnancy itself. Right. And that means be ready to go to the hospital wow. at any moment. Because wow. the last, those last, I've seen one chart that didn't, where it just all gradually slowed down. But most of them, all the others, you know, did a shoot up and, you know, it's like, okay, I got to, you know, I've got to, got to get ready to move. You know, I got to turn around and switch positions and get my head down there and, you know, do this and do that. And And so there's a lot of rambunctious activity. Yeah. So you are aware of that as it were occurring. Do you chart your data every day? Yes, I do. 
So are you disciplined about the time of day that you, because you're still collecting a lot of data on yourself, you have a routine around how you do that? First thing in the morning. First thing in the morning. Well, wait, I I take that back. I fix my pot of tea and then (laughs) I do my charting. And then you do your charting. (laughs) Can I ask you, because I'm so interested in this, because I'm very committed not to becoming a bag of cork and that's a very lofty goal, but to start to take (laughs) better on myself. And where do you write it at the end of the day? Where do you write your tallies or your count? Right. I leave my counts on my counter until the next morning. Okay. And I bring it out and I get out. Well, it used to be my chart paper. Now it's my iPad. And I get that out and I take the number off of the counter and I put it on the iPad. Right. Okay, great. And then start the day again. So you have to do that first thing. Quickly have a cup of tea and then start again. I was going to say, what happens if you then you have some data you want to tally in the process of charting your data? Do you tally it somewhere? Uh, I, if there's quite a bit of it, I'll put it on a piece of paper Yeah, right. uh, for, you know, a few seconds, a few minutes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, normally, even though I'm counting different things at the same time, I've been doing this for yeah, 55 a long years time. now. You're fluent. So I can, I can have, you know, okay, I've got three creative writing. No, I've got three thoughts about writing. I've got one creative writing idea. I have no epilepsy moments. I have, you know, I can, I can do this. Yeah. You know, I can, I can run several in my head for five or 10 minutes until I'm I gonna get ask, out. How long can studio. you hold that data for? Do you know? Like how long can you hold it there? Sometimes at night as I'm getting ready to go to bed, of course, moments, epilepsy moments data, I count 24 hours a day, but the other <clears throat> is just during my waking hours. Although I'm, beginning to think I should change that on my create or writing thoughts to um, 24 hours. I can hold that from the time it takes me. I can hold it for a half an hour in my head yeah. and keep wow. running That's phenomenal. three or four different behaviors, <laughs> but I've been doing it for so long. Yeah. Wow. Because, you know, if I'm taking a minute timing with a kid and I'm counting corrects, I still have to tally errors. Like I don't trust myself between three, four, or five errors. I always tally errors just to make sure. What's I would have, that's where I have a piece of paper. Yeah. And, yeah. Know, I mean, it's today I was writing some things and it's like, I hate being messy. And I've got this absolute mess here of right. phone numbers and then addresses on the back. And that's not me at all. And so before I leave my study today, I have to get that in, in okay. written and I think a part of that probably has to do with epilepsy because, you know, I've, I've got to have things organized and I've had to have them organized all my life so that the world stays straight. Yeah. And fortunately, my father and mother were both people who everything has to be in order. Everything has its place. Yes. And I always thought it was just a habit that I picked up from them, but it was a habit that I picked up out of absolute necessity from them. Yeah. So... Yeah, if my I, grandfather used to say, if everything is out of order, tidy your sock drawer. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Not tidy it. your sock drawer like, and get go from there. In order and then you'll always be able to put on clean socks at the beginning of the day. Like, that's a good place to start. But um, <laughs> anyway, that's off topic. Um, so you are counting epilepsy moments. They wake you up? Mm-hmm. You say you record them 24 hours a day? 
So you will right. wait and be aware of those. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, is yes. that common for people with epilepsy? Do you know that it wakes them? I don't know whether it's common that it wakes them. I haven't asked some of my friends that, but I know that sometimes they wake up in the middle of the night and, oh my gosh, here it goes again. That's my expression. Here it goes again, or here it comes again. Yeah. Yeah. It just really uh, gets you thinking this book because everything from, you know, one of the things that, that I started thinking about was my first husband, his father was born thinking that his mother was his sister. Oh, yes. How often that is. He happened. was Lebanese and it was really taboo. He grew up, at, so oh, gosh, what year would Howard have been born? Um, so he would be about 90 now. So, yeah, so about 1910, I guess. So, yeah, when he found out, he found out when he was 15 and he was so moved, but he, he ran away from home. But the impact on him, because he ran away from home with a suitcase, he became a traveling salesman and he made a lot of money because he had to fend for himself and he wanted to prove himself. Like, so like the impact of this is so enormous, right? For every human being, isn't it? Like the impact on the child, how they respond to it. My mother was adopted. It's had a dramatic impact on her life. Um, it's it's really a phenomenal. So your mother was adopted and your husband's father was the son of his, one of his older sisters. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And my grandmother was sent away to one of those homes that you were talking about. She went to the oh, hills. Okay. She got pregnant to an American soldier when he. Oh, was, you told me that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, she was sent away and then brought back to her home. And my mother eventually tracked her down. She was, she's, Boy, I don't even know if she's still alive, but I did eventually meet her and her other daughter. So yeah, it's it's you know has a dramatic impact Absolutely. in so many ways. So let's talk about some of the questions that you raise at the end of the book. I'm just bringing up my Kindle version for everybody that wants to buy this book. It's you don't have to wait for it to be posted to you because otherwise I would have had to wait a, quite a while. So discussion questions. What, what are the questions that really do you think are impactful questions? There's gosh, how many questions are there in here? There's questions oh, there are a lot. out of the book as well. What's really nice is this could be a um, a study for an English project as well because there are questions in here that would fit very neatly into writing an assignment on this topic, correct? Oh, absolutely. There you go. Absolutely. Um, so there is yeah. general questions and then there's questions on each part of the book. So let's start with one of the general questions and that is I guess what's really good is it looks at it uh, from the decision of Amelia, the main the character and the, the mother in the book, and then also from Jeff's perspective as well in terms of his decision-making because father has a uh, an impact, of course, as well as to whether he's going to stay around and be the father of his child or whether he's he's not going to support the baby, correct, too. So that's, that's a big question. Do you want to talk a little bit about Jeff's perspective and how you formulated that character and his decision-making? I knew ahead of time I wanted Jeff to be somebody who was sideswiped by this. Well, actually, both Amelia and Jeff were sideswiped by it. Yeah. So, but because this was occurring with her body, I felt she would be a little less sideswiped. He didn't have a clue. I mean, he. (laughs) I really enjoyed making him so that he absolutely did not have a clue. Yeah. And so there's no way that he was going to be supportive. 
because he didn't know how. I mean, it was just that simple. He didn't know how. And I admire the 19-year-old young man who gets an 18-year-old girl pregnant and says, well, I think we can work this out. We'll get married and I will continue working at such and such and you'll stay home. And then, you know, if you decide you want to go to college, if I will, we'll cross that bridge down the road. Yeah. And I, I admire those people. You know, they they have a lot more maturity than I gave Amelia or Jeff in in their uh, early 20s. And he'd and, had a very personal upbringing, Jeff, uh, experience in his upbringing that impacted his ability to recognize his own emotions, right? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, yes. right. So right. He had a very specific history that impacted him being able to talk about a lot of things in his life, let alone be in contact and be able to talk openly about this situation in the 60s. Not only that, though, right. he, they weren't in a long-term relationship either, correct? They weren't no, committed no, they were to not. being together. So there they go. There's some of the questions. And then in relation to each of the parts of the book, puts you in contact as if you were Amelia and how you would make a decision in each of those different contexts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so one of the questions that just jumps out at me here is, so in part two, which is, remind me which part two is, is that the adoption? Uh, okay, part one is just sort of the introduction to the whole thing. Part yes. two is the adoption, part three is the abortion, part four is keeping. Yeah, that's the end of the book. So so it puts you in contact with her situation and it helps you ask questions. So, I really love this. I haven't spent a lot of time in these questions, but now I will. <laughs> because I really want to, I guess, we have a different legal situation in Australia. Abortion is still legal here. And in many parts of the world, I imagine, there is obviously that issue of viability and at what point you can still make that decision or not. Right. But I think it's really important in case anybody ever asked you for their opinion or has an issue on this. It doesn't give any answers, this book, but it raises questions. And from my perspective and perhaps from yours, Abigail, what's important from our perspective is not that we have any strong views in relation to this, but the rights of an individual to make up their own mind, I think is what we both share as common ground. I I would say so, yes. I mean, yeah, it's up to the individual, man and woman, excuse me, I should probably should say woman and man, to make their own opinions. And I know that they don't always come up with the same response. And there are women who say, I want to have an abortion. And the man says, I really want to have this child. Well, yeah. my my reaction is, I once had somebody ask me, he didn't have a girlfriend, he had no prospect of one at the moment, but he wanted a child. And he said, would I be a surrogate mother for him? Well, if I hadn't been working in a public school situation, I probably might have done it. But, you know, how do I tell in, you know, whatever it was, the 70s, around 1980? No, it was before that, in the late 1970s, that I'm a public school administrator and I'm carrying a child for somebody else. Wow. Yeah. No, yeah, you can't do that in uh, five years after abortion becomes legal. Plus, I had an insanely busy schedule at that point because I was still finishing my doctor, my PhD dissertation. And, you know, I had a new job and I had a seven-year-old or whatever and a, and a husband and just was too complicated. Would I have done it otherwise? Yes. I mean, I loved being pregnant. So, and I had many miscarriages. So, but I loved being pregnant. 
And yeah. so, you know, it wow, was, then you would uh, have had uh, comparison data from the first pregnancy to the second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, well, yeah. you know, I may like <laughs> looking at data, but I am not that kind. <laughs> I am not that much of a scientist. That I'm gonna think, okay, this is how I'm going to live my life. And I am going to be a surrogate parent and I will compare. They got it feels a, B, a, B design. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I think his name was Bill. I'm sure Bill would have been uh, quite, I remember his house. It was a beautiful old stone house in Lawrence, Kansas. And it had a lot of, um, what do they call them? Um, Oh, those spiders. Anyway, some kind of poisonous spiders, brown spiders, recluse spiders. Oh, uh, Impacted your decision. Yeah, no, I didn't. But um, I guess what that brings up, if you think about that, is that effectively you would have been giving that baby away at the end of the pregnancy and that part of the book where you write very personally about Amelia's journey of baby after a week and delivering it to another family well I mean gosh that's very powerful read and I imagine that you had to put yourself in that scenario and imagining I did and my my niece I mean my sister and her husband had adopted all three of their children and their first child that was based on his life that his mother kept him for two or three or four weeks and yeah. took him all around New York evidently and showed him around and took him to the places that were important to her and then gave him up for adoption. Oh, well, <laughs> more power to her. There's no way I could have done that. Yeah. And in fact, I had someone in the, in the early eighties, she was going to keep the child for three or four days And she was going to then give the child up for adoption. And she already knew the family. I mean, she didn't know the family, but I, somebody had made the arrangement with me. And at the end of the first day, she said, Abigail, she had been one of my students. And uh, she said, I can't do this. Call them up right now. They need to come right now. And, uh, or I won't be able to go through with it. And I knew, she knew, everybody knew it was in the best interest of that child because she didn't have a job. You know, she, she was 19 and she ended up joining the Air Force, which she couldn't have done if she had an infant in 1982. So called the lawyer. I said, get him over here. And boy, that was one emotional scene. That was, you know, you had uh, a bunch of adults and my son was just, he was 12. He was devastated. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was the one, not the mother, not me, not my niece. He was the one who was absolutely sobbing. And I wanted to keep him. I wanted him to be my brother. And he -hmm. hadn't mentioned that before. And I was just astonished. He, He was just totally devastated. I'm sure now he probably doesn't even remember, but maybe he does. But all three of us were there comforting him. Yeah, it was it was a very yeah, these things get really emotional. I have yet to write a book. Hopefully the one I'm working on right now <laughs> uh, will be one I'll make through without crying. But I I take these topics that are just so intense yeah. and uh, and I end up crying my way through the book. This this one that I'm working on right now is uh, stories about Ogden Lindsay. Yeah. So I don't think I'm going to be crying. I'm almost done with it. An- another week and I'll be done. I don't think I'm going to be crying my way through this one. It's pretty. You know, 
Well, it, it's, uh, it's been a long, over a long period of time as well. And, it's been um, over a long period okay, of time. That's very exciting. Well. I'm just about to launch a podcast with Patrick McGreevy because he contributes a chapter to that book. And so uh, yes, I he does. podcast about it, launching at IPTC this year. So that's very exciting. I'm very excited. I'm going to be there and get you to sign it for me and Patrick as well. Right. And some of the other authors, some of the other contributors. And on that note, Abigail Corkin, I am going to say thank you so much for talking on the podcast about the Caroline Letters, a story of birth, abortion and adoption. A very hot topic, a very interesting one. I love the book. I always love talking to you. Bless you. And we'll talk again soon. Okay. Thank you very much. And that was the absolutely delightful Abigail Corkin talking about her book, The Caroline Letters. I'm delighted that she is going to be at IPTC, the um, Precision Teaching Conference in November in Denver, where I will get to meet her in person and thank her um, for her contributions to my podcast and, of course, all of her extraordinary work. She is editing a book on Ogden Lindsay's life and uh, her and many of the contributors to that book will be present for book signing at the conference. So I'm just absolutely delighted to be going there. I hope you enjoyed uh, Abigail Corkin. She is an extraordinary person in terms of the amount of data that she keeps on herself and what an inspiration she is. And she's just one of my favourite people on the planet. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. I am very excited that in the next episode, I will be speaking with Dr. Nathan Blinkush of the Judge Rotenberg Centre, and I hope I've pronounced all of that correctly with my Aussie accent. He is coming to talk to me on a topic that I'm very passionate about, and that is the anti-science of positive behaviour support. So uh, watch out for that one. For those of you that will be at IPTC, or I should say the annual conference, I very much look forward to meeting you all and thank you for all of your support in listening to my podcast, although this is coming up for episode 16 of the most recent uh, launch of the podcast. I think in total I have over 40 episodes uh, recorded to this point and I'm still going and people are still listening, so I'll keep going until people stop listening. And thank you so much for your support and uh, furthering my desire to bring the chat to more people uh, in their practice and to document the histories of some extraordinary people that have contributed to this science that has changed my life and so many others. See you in Denver.